Do you ever wish that your life had a rewind button? Do you know what I mean by that? A button that you can sort of press and, and redo bits that you got wrong. Undo those mistakes, that stupid comment, that hurtful remark, that major misdemeanour that you did. Well, this evening, as we look at the flood, we're going to see God sort of hitting the rewind button. He's going to take us back, not just to uh, before the flood, but actually before at the beginning of creation. Back before the fall. Right back to Genesis 1 verse 1 as he creates the world. God really, in our passage today, is going to remake the world. He's going to demake it first and then remake it. He's going to hit the rewind button. But it's important to note that he's going to do it not because of his mistakes. It's not that God has made a mistake uh, in what he's done. But it's because of our mistake. Actually, God is going to give us a second chance as a species. He's going to help us. Um, But before he does that, he needs to rewind the world. He needs to go backwards. So the first thing that we see is that chaos is renewed. Chaos is renewed. I'll read to you again uh, verses uh, 17 uh, to 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, sorry, face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. What we witness here is a descent back to chaos. If you want a sort of computing analogy, it's like God is reformatting the world. He's clearing everything out of the way. The land that had appeared from the waters in the early chapters of Genesis is now put back under the waters. The water is so high that it's 15 cubits uh, above the the heights of the mountains. That's about half the height uh, of the ark. So really what that's saying is there's no chance of the ark even touching anything. It's, It's not far enough in the water. Everything is totally covered. Uh, just for you sort of budding scientists out there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ark was uh, 15 cubits or the water was 15 cubits higher than Mount Everest. Uh, so tectonic plates, the bits that sort of merge together and come apart, they're always moving. In fact, apparently I read in the news this week that they're estimating that Everest is now an inch lower than it was a couple of weeks ago uh, because of an earthquake that took place near the bottom. So actually it's plausible that Everest was significantly smaller before the flood and it's grown since. But the fact is that it's way above the height of the mountains. There's nothing to view. Everything is back under the water. It's also a return to chaos because the life that God had given to the birds, to the livestock, to the beasts, to the creeping things, to man, is taken away. The breath of life, or the spirit of life, again it's that word we met this morning, ruach, that he breathed into them. Uh, has gone. Somebody asked me how to spell Ruach this morning. I'm spelling it R-U-A-C-H if you're taking notes. Um, but obviously it's spelled in Hebrew, so it doesn't really matter. 
But that idea of, of the breath that God had breathed into them, that the spirit had breathed into them, has gone. The breath has gone out of their, their mouths. The spirit has gone. So it's undoing the work of creation that God did at the beginning. And you see that phrase twice, don't you? That they were blotted out. Verse 23, blotted out every living thing. Uh, and then they were blotted out from the earth. The word there really is like the word for rubber. It's the idea of sort of erasing something. Something that rubs it out. It's like he sort of presses undo on creation by doing this. He rubs out what he's done before. So he's returning it to chaos. And it's a reminder of the dreadful effect of sin, isn't it? Death was the judgment for sin. We saw that back in Genesis uh, 2 and 3. Well, now actually all flesh dies. Uh, What comes to all came all at once as the flood came. In one sense, it's no different from Genesis 5, isn't it? Where Remember the refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But we see it all together here. It's a catastrophic event. And it's to remind us partly of the incredible effect of sin, especially when met with the response of a holy God. This is what we're really seeing by all these things dying. It's judgment on sin. So we mustn't downplay sin as we think about uh, sin in our lives, as we explain sin to other people. Actually, it's a crucial part of this story. Noah's rescue only makes sense in the context of a sinful world. The flood only makes sense if sin is as horrific as the Bible says that it is. Because what happens if we underplay sin? Well, what happens to the flood? Well, it looks like God is overreacting, doesn't it? If sin's just a trifling matter, if it's not really that important, then God is overreacting by sending the flood. We make God to be getting things out of proportion. But sin truly is horrific. And we see that in the way that God judges sin. You see, sin actually is not part of the original plan, is it? It's not there in the original world. It's wholly unnatural and it's offensive to a holy God. In the other accounts uh, of the flood that you get in other religions, it's like man is annoying God. You know, it's just that he, he, one of the creation, uh, one of the flood myths uh, has it that the people are sort of annoying God by being too loud and God wants to sort of calm it down. So he decides to flood the world to make it a little bit quieter. But do you see here, this isn't anything just annoying God. Actually, this is offensive to God. It's an affront to his very person. It's a challenge to his rightful kingship. So we mustn't downplay sin. Don't let anyone fool you. There's no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing. There are degrees to sin. We know that, don't we? But all of them are huge. It's like the difference between an elephant and a mammoth rather than an elephant and a mouse. They're both huge. There are degrees, but they're all massive. And we've all got mammoths, haven't we, in our lives that we like to pretend are mice. But this is showing us that we can't. Sin is massive. Sin is huge. So horrific that God sends the flood. God presses undo on creation. But he doesn't undo everything, does he? Uh, Our second point is that Noah is remembered. Noah is remembered. That's verses 1 to 5 of chapter 8. I'll read them to us again. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. 
The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Have you ever been doing something and then realised that you should have been doing something else? I've done that quite a lot, you know, sort of I've wandered into town and, and suddenly remembered I should have been somewhere. Well, that's not what's happening here as we see God remembering Noah. It wasn't that God was so busy sending the rain and doing all that sort of thing that he sort of forgot about Noah and then suddenly remembered, oh wait, they're on the ark. No, God remembers Noah, not in a way that he's forgotten him, but in a way that that phrase is used throughout the Bible. I didn't put these on your sheets, but uh, in Genesis 19, 29, uh, so this is God speaking, um, sorry, speaking about God. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow while he overthrew through the cities in which Lot had lived. So you see that it's bringing to remembrance Abraham so that he brought out uh, Lot. It's not that he'd forgotten Abraham. Or Genesis 30 verse 22, when God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. So again, it's not that God had forgotten Rachel, but he's bringing it to mind. It's saying that God is going to act, especially in a saving way. He's bringing them to the forefront of their mind. So how does God begin to save now as we see the flood beginning to clear away? Well, God sends his wind, doesn't he? Uh, There in verse one, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, that word wind, we've met that one as well before. It's the same word, ruach. It's the same word as breath or spirit. It's the one we met just before. It's the one we met this morning. He sends his ruach over the the waters to, to, to push it back. And it's a reminisce of, of, of it's reminiscent of Genesis one verse two, isn't it? So you remember Genesis one uh, verse two. It said the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we see the same sort of thing, don't we? The spirit or wind hovers above the waters. It pushes the waters back. God is about to act. That's what it is at the beginning of of Genesis, isn't it? God is poised there waiting above the chaotic waters. It's the same here. It's not saying it's exactly the same. It's more like that feeling of deja vu that you get, isn't it? You know, that you feel like you've read this before or you've done this before. It's an illusion back to it. It's not saying that the wind is the spirit. It's not that God is sending his Holy Spirit and that's what's pushing back the waters. It's clear from the context it is actually a wind. But the allusion is to the spirit. God is using these phrases and these actions to point us there. It's a bit like if the the passage had said the wind huffed and puffed, huffed and he puffed. We'd be thinking Little Red Riding Hood, wouldn't we, with the, the big bad wolf. And using those phrases, it's not supposed to say this equals this, but it's supposed to bring it to your mind. It's a real description of what's happening, but it makes us think of something else at the same time. And we're going to see more allusions in the next section to the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this, we mustn't forget the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament. He was there right at creation. 
He's present here in redemption to save. God might not be physically sending him as the wind, but he's involved in this act to save Noah and to save the whole world. And this is also a reminder of the other great saving act that the Israelites who'd be reading this for the first time would remember. It's a reminder of the parting of the Red Sea. So if you look on your uh, sheets, Exodus verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. God here, they're using the wind again to part the sea, to divide the waters like he did in creation on day two. And if you read carefully the passage before, we didn't mention it last time, but the date that this all happens, that the flood starts at least, uh, seems to be the day that Noah, uh, not Noah, (laughs) Moses parted the Red Sea. Well, God really parted the Red Sea, didn't he? Um, But it's a sort of reminder of that saving act, all linked with water, all linked with the spirit, the wind that's happening. And here it would have been a reminder to the Israelites of God's saving power. God has done it before. He's done it with the flood. He's done it with the parting of the Red Sea. He's going to do it again. Well, he does do it again, doesn't he? He parts the Jordan for them as they enter the promised land. But it's a reminder that God acts to save. Just as God remembered the Israelites in the wilderness, so he remembers Noah and he acts and the waters begin to recede. The next thing we see is life renewed. That's verses 6 to 12. says this at the end of 40 days Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground but the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him any more. So here we have the bit that's confused me all week because I've been trying to work this out and think this through. Noah sends out these birds and it seems to be significant But why is it significant? What is he doing? Why does he send a raven, then he sends a dove? Why does he do this? Well, let's look first at the raven. He sends out a raven. Now, in the Bible, a raven is a black, unclean bird. It was a bird they weren't allowed to eat. And we know that they know about uncleanness because actually God told Noah to bring seven pairs of clean animals in with him. So he must have an idea of clean and unclean. If you want to know how that is, Well, you can put it on a blue slip, but I'm not sure I'll be able to to answer it. But he seems to know there are some animals that are clean and there are some which are unclean. He seems to know which they are. And a raven is an unclean bird. Now, he sends him out, we're told uh, there in verse 7, and he sent forth a raven. Interestingly, we're not told the intention of sending the raven. So I've always assumed, basically, as you read it, he sent out the raven to do the same job as the dove. But we're not told that for definite. Actually, this bird even doesn't return, does he? You see, he carries on 
so it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. That's something that we miss as well. I think when I was a, a child and you sort of get this in Sunday school, you sort of get the story that Raven goes out, he comes back and there's nothing. Then he sends out a dove and he comes back and there was nothing. But the raven doesn't come back. The raven stays out there until all the waters have dried up from the face of the earth. And that poses a bit of a question if you think about it. How does a bird survive outside the ark when there's no ground? What is he supposed to do? Well, the raven is an unclean bird because it's a carrion bird. That's part of it. It eats dead things. Ravens and crows, they're associated with battlefields historically because actually after a battle they come out and they feed uh, on the the battlefields they feed on the the bodies that are there all members of the crow family which a raven is do this to some extent this is probably the ancestor of all those those different ones but part of this is, is partly to remind us really what it's doing outside it's actually feasting isn't it or it's surviving on the the bodies the deadness of what's outside The fact that it can survive in a world where there's no food means it it must be eating the things that have died in the flood. It's a really horrific picture, really. So this this unclean black bird that's linked with death and uh, all sorts of horrible things, that's what's sent out first and it stays outside. That's, That's what the world is like as it starts, if you like. But then Noah sends out a dove. Uh, It could be related to a pigeon as well. Again, it would be the ancestor of our, our doves. And that is a white, clean bird. So it's sort of the opposite of a raven, if you like. A raven is black and unclean. A dove is white and clean. And again, like we know, we know the distinction is made in the previous chapter because we know that it's, it's clean. There would have been seven sets. So some people think it's the idea that, well, he's got some spare of these so he can sort of spare them to go out. But actually, it seems to be something a bit more than that. He sends it out the first time and it comes back with no food. But then he sends it out a second time and it comes back with an olive branch. Now, again, olive branches, they're not, they don't just stand by themselves. Olive branches and olives appear all the way through the Bible. Uh, I've done a bit of horticultural research this week and discovered that one of the things about olives that's distinctive is that they don't grow on mountains. They grow on sort of sides of hills, but once you get a bit higher, they don't survive because it's too cold. So actually, part of this is saying that this food has come from somewhere lower than the tops of the mountains. We know the tops of the mountains are clear, but them coming back with an olive leaf means the, the waters have gone a bit lower because they wouldn't grow high up. But it's also more than that, isn't it? Olives and olive branches, they're a product of Canaan. They're a product of the promised land. So the land that the Israelites were to take, the land that these people were being spoken to, they have olives. So Deuteronomy 8, uh, 7 to, to 9. This is uh, written around the same time. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose digs you can uh, hit, who's out of whose hills you can dig copper. You could probably get it out of their digs as well. I've probably got it there. Um, but the promised land is associated with olives, with olive trees. The Israelites are sometimes pictured as an olive tree. But Egypt, for example, is never associated with olives. 
Uh, it's associated with uh, cucumbers and melons and things like that, but never olives. This is particularly a food of the promised land. So it's partly a reminder to the, the Israelites as they read it. Oh, yeah, this is the place where we're going, where the good things are. Uh, just like the dove has got it for uh, the, the first fruits, if you like. Uh, they're going into that place. But it's not just the olives that are significant, is it, in this story. The dove is significant too. There's no coincidence that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit appears as a dove. It's one of the few things that appears in all four Gospels. And we all know, of course, that the dove is a sign of peace. Is it? But is it, though? So we think that, don't we? We're thinking, right, dove, peace. We see it on all the sort of posters, don't we? But where have we got this idea that the dove is a sign of peace? If anything's going to be the sign of peace here in this passage, it's going to be the rainbow. God hanging up his bow in the sky. It's the word used for a bow and arrow. It's like he's hanging up uh, his weapon. We mustn't read connotations that we have from later on back into this passage or connotations that we have from outside the Bible. Actually, if you think about it here, what the dove is representing or, or seeming to show is that it's a bringer of new life. It's bringing this food from the new creation. And if you think about how the spirit works, that's similar, isn't it? The spirit is the one who brings new life, who makes new creation in a person. That's actually what we're, we're looking for. And the spirit is the agent of new creation in our lives, isn't it? So John six sixty three, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Actually, the dove is the life bringer, is the new uh, creation bringer. So I'm not saying that we need to read all that back into Noah's situation here as though, again, the, the dove is the Holy Spirit. But when those symbols appear elsewhere, we should think about what the dove meant in the first place in the ark, because this is the first time that it appears. When we see the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, we shouldn't have peace in our head. We should have new creation, new life uh, in our head. So that's what we seem to have, isn't it? Um, uh, last point, creation restarting, new creation. Creation restarts. I'll read you 13 to 19. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast and every crawling thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So here in this, this last bit of our account today, God tells Noah and his family to get off the ark. And it's just worth pausing to stop. I mean, he, he goes through in all the detail again, doesn't he, of what uh, what is getting off the ark. So the, the creeping things, the birds, the animals, Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. And you might think this is needless repetition. Is it just that he, he likes using these big long lists? 
But I think what we're supposed to see is that all the people and animals that got on the ark get off the ark. It's not as though, uh, you know, three of his, two of his sons had an accident and didn't manage to make it. Actually, God has kept them. He's cared for them this whole time. Even though they lived through the most horrendous flood this world has ever known, even though everybody else has died, they've been kept safe, completely safe. And think about it. They've been cooped up in a, in an ark with lions and snakes and who else knows what uh, was on the ark for over a year. That would be dangerous in itself, wouldn't it? Can you imagine being the person who has to look after the lions or, or care for the snakes? But God has kept them safe. Even in a situation to say dangerous would be an understatement. And on top of that, he's kept them from killing each other, hasn't he? We've seen that uh, from Genesis that man has a propensity to antagonise each other. And yet actually God has kept them from killing each other. I couldn't imagine what it would be like cooped up in there for over a year. So God tells them to get off and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. You see that there in verse 17. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And this is a, a bridge really to the next section where God will repeat to Noah so much of what he said to Adam and Eve. We said last time, didn't we, that Noah is portrayed as a new Adam. Well, this world that they're walking out to is portrayed like a new Eden, a fresh start, a new beginning. And the first reader should read this as being hopeful. They too were going into a new Eden, if you like. They were setting out into the promised land from the wilderness. For them, that was going to be a fresh start, a new beginning. Even though their fathers had failed like Noah's fathers had failed, they were pressing on. They were going on into the promised land. And there were things that they must take care not to do, just like God gives to Noah. And there were dangers to avoid. And again, we'll see some of those next week. But there's hope for them. This is a new start, a fresh start. And it means, doesn't it, uh, as we close, that there's hope for us too, as they walk out into this new world. We have a better opportunity than Noah in our lives. Spoiler alert for the rest of the story, Noah will fail. New creation will not come. But we have hope of new creation, don't we? In fact, we have the start of a new creation now. So 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We'll see how this is possible over future weeks. And we'll see in the morning as well how this happens. But take encouragement. If you're a Christian here this evening, you have a fresh start. You have a new beginning. You have a new hope. And if you haven't, you can have one tonight. But I know what most of us will be thinking. You'll be thinking, well, I've had my fresh start. Ten years ago, five years ago, twenty years ago. And, well, I've messed it up. Just like Noah did. But God is a God of fresh starts. He won't rewind the past. We won't do that, but his mercies for today are new every morning. In Christ, every day is a fresh start if we come to him for mercy. Every morning is a new beginning if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Our new creation is restarted. Life is renewed. Not because we are good, not because we are worthy, but because Jesus has purchased it for us. He won it for us on the cross. So let's be thankful for our Lord Jesus for bringing us that new creation, that fresh start, that new hope.
that we can all have.